Hey y'all, Daniel here. Welcome back to My Pop 5. Our next guest is a music and pop culture nerd we followed closely for about a decade now. Mike Seatown is perhaps best known as one-fifth of the music blog Dead End Hip Hop. Since 2011, the crew has been discussing music and culture, mostly through weekly YouTube videos. Mike himself also hosts a separate channel that is dedicated to his extensive record collection and covering some of his other favorite genres, notably a lot of punk and a lot of black metal. We had an unforgettable time talking to Mike about being a Buffy the Vampire Slayer loving punk in the South. After much anticipation, let's get into it. Here's our episode with Mike Seatown. Hello, everyone. We are back with a new episode. We are with the incredible Mike Seatown. Mike's an incredible music presence online, both in the YouTube world and many podcasts out there. You may know him as being one fifth or better yet, the Simon Cowell of Dead End <laughs> Hip Hop. Mike, thanks so much for joining. We're really excited to have you here. Thank you much. I appreciate the invite. Yeah. So, Mike, Daniel and I have both been fans of your stuff for a long time. Can you give us a little bit of your background and kind of how you got into chatting about music and criticism and, you know, just your love for it and kind of what got you involved in the first place? So I actually didn't, I never actually wanted to do this. So (laughs) it's been a while since we've told this story, but basically all of us, with the exception of BZ, all of us worked at the same job and we would just talk about hip hop in emails. I knew nothing about YouTube at the time. You know, I thought YouTube was just where you'd go to like watch music videos. They came to me one day and they were like, oh, we're going to, we're going to start a YouTube show. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? And they're like, yeah, we're going to make a show where we talk about rap music. And I was like, that sounds fucking stupid. Oh wait, can I curse? I'm sorry. I think I heard. Yeah, as much as okay. Want. Yeah. As much as you I want. think I heard somebody slip up before, but I wasn't sure if it was a natural, if it was a natural fuck or if it was like an accidental fuck. But um, natural always. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I was like, yeah, that sounds dumb. But they just kept talking about it, and eventually, I went on one episode, and I actually enjoyed it. You know, mm-hmm. so I was like, all mm-hmm. right, so you guys are gonna do this like every week. Cool. I, I'm in. But yeah, I mean, at first, I was just like, yeah, these dudes know nothing about rap. I was super fucking stuck up about like, if it's not underground with 12 fans, I don't want to hear this shit, you know? I think I just ended up liking the guys and 10 years later, we're still, we're still doing it. That's incredible. And I think that's kind of, you know, it's something that comes up a lot. And what we talk about here is as much as whatever you do, whether it's who you make music with or who you're making a podcast or videos or anything with, as much as it is about the talent and the content of what people are talking about in your your situation, it's also about the hang, like how much you enjoy being around the people, you know, you don't want to do anything 20 hours a week or however much time you spend on any of this stuff, unless you do enjoy them and unless you do enjoy the company and the work that they put out. So it makes complete sense. And you guys have a natural chemistry, right? Um, I think that even when you guys completely disagree, I think there's a, a mutual respect. I think that is what creates the the cool nature of what y'all do. Yeah. I mean, it took a, it, <laughs> it took a while for us to get there. I mean, yeah. we've all known each other for 20 plus years at this point, right? Yeah. Wow. Like 20 years. At the beginning, it was a little rough. I'm probably 90% to blame because, I mean, I was drinking a lot and I would just start fights and <laughs> I'd start screaming and 
You know, <laughs> it's never a good idea to like try to debate rap music when you're fucking hungover. <laughs> it never, it never goes well. Unless you guys all agree, then it's like, okay, we're all yeah. drunk and we're all talking about how much we love MF Doom. But right. if one of us is wasted and it's like, oh, you know, I think Jay-Z is a better rapper than MF Doom. Oh, I'm going to fucking scream and holler and try to slit your throat yeah. at some point. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost personal at that point. Yeah. Like, no, I'm standing my fucking Yep. <laughs> you're not going to tell me I'm wrong. Well, I am going to tell you you're wrong because you are wrong. And it's like, oh, you're, you're kind of being an asshole. But, you know. <laughs> if you don't mind my asking, what line of work was everyone in when you guys first met? Imagining something very off from music. Oh, God, dude. Yeah. So we all worked at a web design company. Actually, I can't even say it's a web design company. It's, it's like an advertising company. So Basically, the company we were at, they would go out and they would primarily take advantage of very old people or people who were just not internet savvy. And they would sell them Mm -hmm. these garbagey websites and promise them that they're going to get like hundreds of hits. They'd get like, you know, 20 a month at best, Mm -hmm. you know, because our websites were absolute garbage. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I was a writer there. I was a consultant there. I was a manager there. Some of the other guys were designers, consultants. Mm-hmm. So really yeah. weird that that's where we came from, but that's the story. Yeah. That's the best sometimes when you just, stuff comes out of nowhere and organically just just happens. So yep. I think that's why it happens. You know, if it were contrived, you probably wouldn't have the success that y'all have had so far. This is true. I agree with that. Yeah. Well, let's get into it, Mike. We ask everyone here at the start to list their pop five with no comment, no context. Do you mind listing your pop five for us? Sure. I didn't put these in a... Um, a particular no particular order. order. Okay, cool. I listed the the first one, which was just an obvious choice, which is the Cure. Then I gave Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Charles Bukowski, David Lynch, and Gleaming the Cube. We were both really excited about this. I was also surprised at the omission of hip hop, considering how much of that is in this space here. But we love it nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, so with this one, I kind of wanted to talk about shit that I don't always talk about. I've talked about The Cure a million times, but some of the other things on here, I don't think I've really talked about in a public space very much. Pop, I wasn't sure exactly how strict that was, because I know one of the episodes I I listened to, the the girl on there was talking about like indie rock. And so I was like, well, I don't know if I can list like an MF Doom or an LP or something like that, because it wouldn't be considered technically pop. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to kind of like steer away from from that, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, we're pretty loose with it. I think that's one of been, you know, my favorite things about doing the show thus far is because we're not strict about it, mm-hmm. you know, the the various different levels. We've gotten some people who have like talked about uh, some of the rather obscure stuff, right? It's just like a specific essay or something that they found, you know? And oh. so it's like, cool, we'll roll with it, you know? If something's impactful for them, it's nice to kind of hear it. But yeah, let's get into it. I know you said you've talked about them quite a bit, but I'd love to kind of start with The Cure. Why don't you tell us a bit about your kind of introduction to them, what you loved so much about The Cure, and why it's here on your Pop 5. Yeah, so with The Cure, I kind of, and this is, I mean, I hate to start off so dark, but I mean, I kind of credit The Cure for God, I mean, really for me being alive still, you know, I mean, I think I would have, I think I would have fucking hung myself in high school if I had never heard Disintegration, you know, I think Mm. that that album in particular, it really made me feel less weird for Mm. being kind of sad about stupid shit or shit that Mm -hmm. eventually won't really matter. Because, you know, when you're in high school, everything matters, you know, like when you're in high school, like. If you walk by a girl that you sort of have a crush on and you drop your book in front of her and you have to bend over and pick it up, I mean, who cares, right? But 
in high school, it's like, oh my God, I dropped my book in front of Cindy and now I'm forever going to be the book dropper, you know, and I want to, I want to kill myself because I'm, I'm the fucking book dropper guy. Yeah. But compile that onto, you know, me being this awkward, weird kid that moved to the South from California, had no friends. I was quote unquote too white for black kids to hang out with. And Mm. and then the white kids just didn't want to hang with black kids, period, because they were, you know, racist, I guess. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I was fucking picked on daily. I would go home every day and just be like, God, man, life is fucking stupid, man. Life sucks. Life is trash. Then you find an album like Disintegration where you have this guy who's been making albums for, at that point, years. And Mm -hmm. he's like, yeah, you know, life does kind of suck, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're not weird for thinking life sucks, you know? Because you'd watch TV and you'd see all these people that are happy because sitcoms were the thing at the time. So you'd watch sitcoms. Everyone's laughing and joking and every, every dude's got a girlfriend, even the ugly dudes. So it's like, mm-hmm. oh man, so what the hell's going on? Like, what's wrong with me? And then here comes Robert Smith. And he's just like, man, nothing's wrong with you. Life is just stupid. Life yeah. is fucking stupid, but you can make it because I made it. So it's like, all right, gotcha, mm-hmm. gotcha, Robert. 10 4. I'll, <laughs> I'll stick around for a little longer. What age were you when you moved to the South? And, and was it like a small town or was it like a pretty oh, big dude. area? Oh man, I didn't know we we're going to get into this. This is good for you. We'll get back to the show in just a moment. No, this isn't an ad read, but we do have a couple of things that we'd love to share. I've been getting quite a few questions about how you can support the show. The truth is you're already doing it by listening. But if you're looking to do a little bit more, the best way is to support our show is to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Rating and reviewing truly does make all the difference for podcasts. So leave us a review, and in that review, tell us what your pop five is, and we'll read it on the show. Another way to help us out is just following us on Instagram at mypop5. We post short recaps of the show and include video or music clips that are referenced in the episode. They're some of our favorite pieces of content to produce. Anyway, thank you again for listening, and we'll get back to the show. So I was born in Boston. I, then I moved to, to California when I was like five. And uh-huh. I was in California until I was like 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. I moved from California to a city called Conyers, Georgia which I guarantee you've never heard of it. Nope. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) So Conyers, Georgia is, (laughs) Conyers, Georgia is known for like maybe three things. One of them being, there was a show called In the Heat of the Night, Mm. which you guys probably don't know of, but I guarantee either your your mom or your grandma knows about the show. It's like an older (laughs) show. Carol O'Connor, who played Archie Bunker. It doesn't matter. Either way, that was like the least popular thing, right? The second popular thing was we had a lady there that every year she would see the Virgin Mary in the sky and people would come from all over, like legit all over just to drive to her house and sit in her front yard and have her tell them what the Virgin Mary was saying. Whoa. (laughs) Side note, me and my, me and a couple of buddies of mine used to fucking, (laughs) we used to rob her donation box (laughs) and take and take the money and go fucking play video games with it. (laughs) I mean, I, I I assume there's a, the the statute of limitations has passed on that. So (laughs) she she can't do shit now, but, um, but the Virgin Mary might be able to, man, you got to watch. I mean, you know, if she, if she gets me at some point, I feel like I deserve it, you know, (laughs) but the biggest thing that Conyers was known for was we had the largest syphilis outbreak in the United States history. 
because <laughs> our schools, there were three high schools in Conyers and there was nothing to do there. So people would have sex parties mm. um, because I was a loser. I never got invited, you know, and the one time I crashed, <laughs> no one would have sex with me. So it didn't matter. So I I avoided all of this, but basically these, these kids would have sex parties and somehow syphilis got involved and everyone in Conyers had syphilis. It was so bad, bro. They made a documentary about it on PBS called <laughs> The Lost Children of Rockdale. So, yeah, that was that was my that was my uh, that was my high school experience, man. You know, all the cool kids were going to sex parties and they ended up getting syphilis. And I was going to fucking punk rock shows and got (laughs) I don't know, got nothing, got stupid tattoos. And that's about it. That was my class and the class after mine. So I left Conyers and went to Georgia State. So I left Conyers and moved into Atlanta. And my first year in school, my best friend at the time, Will, called me up and he was like, yo, he's like, that's where C-Town comes from. It's Conyers. (laughs) (laughs) But he's like, bro, C-Town's on on TV. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, man, they made a documentary about the sex parties. And I'm like, what? Are you saying the the Martha's Vineyard sex parties? He's like, yeah, dude. And I, I watched it and my mom saw it and she was like, tell me you weren't doing any of this. And I'm like, are you serious? Have you met me? No. I wasn't going to sex parties. I was going to stupid punk rock shows. You know that. There's no sex being had at straight edge punk shows. There's no sex there. You brought it up and I was thinking that you were maybe, you know, removed from this historical event. But no, you lived right through it. I went right through it, bro. It's incredible. Yep. I I, I watched the documentary and I was like, oh, I remember that girl. Yeah, I thought she was Mm. super cute. Good thing she didn't think I was cute. (laughs) Wow. This was a detour. I I asked the question initially because (laughs) the reason I had asked is, you know, as we were talking about The Cure, you talked about that painful feeling of like, once you become one thing in high school, that's you forever, right? Yeah. And I think in small towns, that's even more so the case. If you go to the same school, elementary school through high school, like you can mess up when you're six mm. and then that's it. You're that kid until you're 18, you know? Yep. You know, at 13, it's still the same case, right? You know, that's still, you know, five, six years that you're just stuck with people's impressions of you no matter how much that changes, especially in a small town like that. Yeah, that's absolutely a fact. The yeah. smallest things. I remember I got a huge pimple on my nose and this mm. girl, Dee Dee, told everyone it was a wart. And <laughs> I was wart nose for like a year and a half. <laughs> Here comes wart nose. There's wart nose. And you look back on it now and you're like, that's fucking stupid. But man, who wants to be fucking wart nose at 13? You know? Stupid. Man, shame on Dee Dee, man. Yeah. Dee Dee sucks. <laughs> Dee Dee totally sucks. I hope karma got her. <laughs> I hope so. hope she has a huge fucking wart in the middle of her <laughs> yeah. forehead and they call her like unicorn or something. Oh, man. When was it that you actually moved to the Atlanta area? So that would have been, I'm going to show my age, but whatever. That was like 96. So I moved into okay. Atlanta right when the Olympics were happening. Oh, We've wow. only had the Olympics here once. And I moved into the dorms. It became their dorms, but at Mm. first they were Georgia State's dorms. Mm. Dude, I could seriously, I could have you guys for two hours telling you stories about the dorms. (laughs) Um, One of these days I'm going to actually write this book I've been talking about for years. I moved into Atlanta in 96 and it was just crazy. It was my first time being in like a big city because Conyers is so Mm. small. You know, I saw actual, you know, people that weren't just like rednecks. 
Mm-hmm. It was a really weird transition, man. Going from Conyers, this super tiny town that was very like it wasn't multicultural on purpose. It was just very, very split and very racist. Mm-hmm. Into moving into the city and then being like, oh man, this is where all the color is. Yeah. This is where all the culture and shit is. There's so many different kinds of people down here. It was like a different world. It was crazy. So when you were talking about going to the shows and stuff, you were having to commute to Atlanta to see shows, or was there stuff coming <laughs> near closer to Conyers, or how did how did that work? How were you seeing shows, or was it just underground folks in your area that you were going to see? There were no concerts in Conyers with the exception of there was a church there that would do like, you know, Christian rock shows, which was mm-hmm. definitely not mm-hmm. not my thing because everyone in Conyers thought I was a Satanist, which is another <laughs> another ridiculous story. No, we would we would drive into the city. So the city was about 35 minutes from Conyers. Oh, that's not too bad. And we would drive into the city to skate too because, I mean – Conyers mm. skating was cool, but you know you really ran the risk of getting beat up by rednecks or you know whatever. So mm. we would drive into Atlanta to skate, and me and my friend Brad got involved in the punk and hardcore scene. And like you know, there were house shows then, so we would go to lots and lots of house shows. That's really what saved my life, man. Was you know I, I said the Cure, of course. That kind of put the idea that you know okay, not everybody is a weirdo for being sad. But then finding punk rock, then you're like okay, well not everybody's sad about being a weirdo. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So going to punk rock shows and seeing all these people, you know, with green hair and huge wallet chains and listening to this crazy music that people in Conyers who already hated me would just be livid about, you know. It was the coolest fucking thing ever. So we would drive into the city as often as possible and just go to shows. Wow. Moving back to The Cure, you mentioned Disintegration and the fact that they had been making music for 10 years before that. So was Disintegration the first record you heard? And if so, did it cause you to go back and listen to the rest of this discography? Or what was your relationship with the rest of The Cure's catalog at that time? That's an amazing question. I'm trying to remember, dude. This was a long time ago. (laughs) Um, I mean, that might have been the first full album that I heard. Mm -hmm. I'd heard, of course, Cure songs. You know, I'd heard, you know, Friday I'm in Love and Love Cats. But the thing is, that was originally why I didn't investigate The Cure. Because I was like, there are all these fucking songs. Mm -hmm. They're so happy. Like, Friday I'm not in love. Friday I'm at home or I'm (laughs) at the fucking arcade playing video games because I'm not in love. So I don't want to hear this shit. Yeah, what I think was interesting is you mentioned being able to relate to the sadness of it, right? And the early catalog was that. I think the first three, four records was pretty low. But then they hit that popular phase with Just Like Heaven, Friday I'm In Love. Those upbeat pop tunes, Disintegration was them coming back down. You caught them right in the sweet spot, you know, especially for that era. So it was just kind of interesting that that's where you hit them on that journey. Yeah, I got got very lucky. You're totally right. Because I feel like if I had discovered them with like Wish... Mm -hmm. I don't know how much they would have affected me. I might have still thought, oh, yeah. this band's this band's great. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that songs like Pictures of You and mm-hmm. Love Song, even though it's a love song, it still sounds so fucking sad. Yeah. You know, Fascination Street. But it was really the song, Disintegration. Oh, Prayers for Rain, too, by the way, which is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. The song, Disintegration, is still, it's my favorite Cure song. And I remember when they played, when they played here, my girlfriend was going with me and I told her, I was like, okay, so... I'm weird about crying. I don't cry in public ever. Crying's weird to me. Mm. It's not like a manly thing because I'm far from manly. I don't know. Crying makes me super uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. No matter who's doing it, I'm just like, stop. It's weird. (laughs) But I was like, Mm -hmm. there's a good possibility that if they play Disintegration, I might weep. They play Disintegration and I was like, oh my God, just don't look at me. Just don't look at me. Just don't look at me. (laughs) (laughs) But that song, 
God, man, it's just a perfect song. It's always this one specific part that gets me. You know, he says, dropping through the sky like the glass of the roof, like the roof of your mouth, through the mouth of the eye, through the eye of the needle, it's easier for me to get closer to heaven than ever feel whole again. For some reason, every time that part comes on, I feel it coming. <laughs> oh, even if, even if I'm by myself, just that part, it's easier for me to get closer to heaven than ever feel whole again. So when I heard that in high school, I was like, God, this guy is also saying that it's easier for me to just kill myself or be dead than to actually feel whole. And people will listen to that kind of thing, like people that don't understand this type of music, and they'll just be like, oh, well, this is going to make people kill themselves. And it's like, no, motherfucker, this makes you not want to kill yourself because you can identify with someone else that feels just like you, so you no longer feel alone. Hmm. So that's what that album did for me. Like That album really was wow. just like, oh, man, I get what you're going through. You've never met me. I'm way older than you, and I live across the globe from you, but I totally understand exactly what you're going through. That's how I felt. Yeah. Wow, that's powerful. I'm curious too, you hear all the time, there are people in this world who I don't necessarily understand, but that don't have that relationship with their music or haven't had that connection with music or art in general, right? Yeah. Their relationship with music is it's what's on at the party or at the beach or whatever. And that's kind of just that, you know, I'm curious, what do you think it was about music in general that made you so analytical and so opinionated about the art and what it stands for? I think it's just a matter of certain people's brains work differently than others. You know, I'm not mm -hmm. I'm not always over analytical. Um, at least I try not to be. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of music that I listen to that I really couldn't break down to you. I listen mm -hmm. to a lot of black metal. I can't sit here and really have an in-depth conversation about why I like music that sounds like it was recorded in a dumpster underwater. <laughs> I can't really explain mm -hmm. that. But when mm -hmm. it comes to something like The Cure... And sitting with it for so long and studying it for so long and the fact that it actually does affect me as a person in a way that nothing else has, it just makes it easier for me to kind of be able to be analytical about that type of music or, or about music in general or art in general. Because I can say, okay, my first experience with basically, basically not wanting to be dead, my first experience with that is finding music. And music was the thing that I could come home after a day of people calling me F-A-G-G-O-T all day or, you know, throwing fruit cups at me or whatever. Mm. I could come home and just throw on a Fishbone album and be like, yeah, those guys fucking, those guys get it. Those guys, I, I want to be like those dudes one day, you know? Well, why? Because in this song, he says this, and this makes me feel this. That's when I really started to get that sort of brain. Where I know a lot of people just put on music and they're just like, oh, this is for fun. This is for entertainment. But I think when you talk to people who can legitimately say that music saved their lives, they just think about it differently for the rest of their life. Yeah. I'm 20 years removed from this shit happening, but I still think about music that way. I don't want I to. I wish I didn't. Honestly, I do. I wish yeah. I didn't because if I didn't, I can enjoy a lot more music than I actually do. Yeah, that's a good point. I never thought about it that way. You know, I, I feel the same both from a technical standpoint. I can kind of relate in the sense that I wish I could experience listening music without knowing anything about mm -hmm. it just for the sake of being able to experience it that way. But yeah, I'm curious, when you were growing up, was there a lot of music in the household? Now you're finding aspects of like The Cure or punk music that it was, there was always music in the household and now I'm finding my own thing? Or was it there wasn't really music in the household and this was your introduction to music, period? Oh yeah, there was always music in the house. My dad, me and him had a horrible relationship, but the mm -hmm. one thing I can say is that he was pretty open as far as music goes. So mm -hmm. 
My mom was more of a R&B kind of gal, but mm-hmm. my dad liked, you know, he liked R&B as well, but he also liked, you know, stuff like Michael Jackson. He also liked Prince. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people are surprised when I say that, you know, I have a huge affinity to country music because, mm-hmm. you know, that was even played around the house. My dad yeah. dug Hank Williams Jr., mainly because Hank Williams Jr. had a song with Ray Charles, Two Old Cats Like Us. And I guess my dad was like, well, shit, if he's good enough for Ray Charles, then, or, you know, <laughs> I got into country music as well when I was a little bit younger, kind of moved away from it. But now, I mean, as an adult, I absolutely love country music. But yeah, music was constantly being played in the house. That's something that I've always gotten from you is just having a really eclectic taste in music. How is that perspective when you're interacting with the other, you know, dead and hip hop guys? Did they start out by giving you shit for it? Do they still give you shit for it? What is that kind of interaction like? No, I've never really felt like they necessarily gave me shit. I mean, they might make jokes here and there, you know, about the, you know, listen to that devil music, but they're they're totally not serious. Or I mean, if they are, I don't know that they are. Maybe they're serious. I don't know. (laughs) But well, I mean, I can't say I didn't feel weird around them because of that, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't their fault that I felt weird. I'll say Mm -hmm. that. I felt weird around them in that respect, but that was more so my insecurity. It wasn't because they were saying or doing anything that made me feel that way. I I listened to metal way more than I listened to hip hop. Mm. It just so happened that I met four dudes into hip hop. If I met four guys into metal, dead in metal might've been a thing or dead in punk. I don't know. But hip hop is not my primary genre and people are usually totally bugged out by that. Wow. I think especially in the online hip hop space, there was that time where Kendrick shouted you guys out in an MTV interview, (laughs) or you're mentioned on JPEG Mafia's veteran, totally shouts you out in in kind of a a funny way. Yeah, It's funny how maybe you were a little bit reluctant, like you said, to be a part of this Mm. platform, but then kind of went on to get a little bit of notoriety in the space. Yeah, it's funny. It's really funny whenever anyone brings up the Kendrick thing. Because yeah, it's just funny because I was fucking wrong, dude. He, right, he, in the video, yeah. <laughs> I guess yeah. to give some background, during Dead and Hip Hop's uh, review of To Pimp a Butterfly, Ken mentioned the acronym To Pimp a Caterpillar, and that being Tupac. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and as Mike said, was he was like, no, no, I don't think so. I wish I was that nice. I wasn't that nice. I was like, that's fucking stupid. That's stupid. You guys made that up. <laughs> yeah. But then Kendrick actually went on and was in an MTV interview with Rob Markman and he brought it up and he said, yeah, those guys are dead in hip hop. They called that oh, out in their interview. God. <laughs> I mean, what was it like uh, seeing that? I mean, was it, was it oh, cool man. from an outside perspective? Like me looking at that, I'm like, dude, fucking Kendrick, you know, he's one of the biggest rappers in the world. From your perspective, is it like, is it at least good to see that kind of acknowledgement or to know that the rappers, the hip hop space is watching you guys? Yeah. Yeah. No, that was, that was super cool. So Rob Markman, who I was familiar with, but I'd never spoken to him. He sent us a message and was just like, yo, you're about to get a huge shout out or something. And we're like, what are you talking about? And he wrote back and was like, oh, just wait, just wait. We're like, what the fuck? Like, what is this Riddler shit? Like, what are you doing, bro? <laughs> but then later on, we we never in a million years thought that that's what it was going to be. We did not think it was going to be Kendrick Lamar going on MTV and saying the words dead in hip hop. And when he said it and he said what he was talking, I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I was like, that was true? 
<laughs> that totally ridiculous theory was true. I had to eat crow. I was like, well, I guess I was super fucking wrong, man. You know? But yeah, no, it was but- it was a really cool feeling because it was just like, oh, that's that's awesome that someone like Kendrick Lamar, who you would never think is sitting around watching YouTube, actually watched a dead and hip hop, you know, review. Right. For you to be, you know, the Simon Cowell of dead end hip hop, you know, someone that people know as being very outspoken a lot of times, you know, especially in the earlier years to have your opinion kind of catapulted into the mainstream like that. Yeah. Did it ever make you feel like maybe I shouldn't be uh, having some opinions or expressing some opinions or that kind of thing? Yes, absolutely. It was that plus, you know, I've had a couple of rappers that have actually spoken to me directly, not not ever in like an aggressive kind of way of like, you know, stop talking shit, I'm gonna fuck you up. You know, I always credit, I credit the Kendrick thing with like, yo, maybe you should chill out and just not be so quick to say someone else's shit is wrong. Then there's also the Lupe thing um, where he hit me up and was just trying to explain to me why, you know, people's words matter. And when you say certain things, it can really fuck up an artist's day. He didn't say it exactly like that. He was Lupe, so it was very articulate. But it was things like that were partly why you've seen a, a little bit of a change in my in my demeanor as far as how I review albums. It's just like, okay, I can think something is bad. I can say it without saying, this shit sucks. No one should listen to this and fuck this rapper. You know, that's just not necessary. <laughs> Especially coming from like the punk rock scene. I got the shit totally backwards. You know, coming from the punk rock scene, I should have been like, yo, everyone has, everyone deserves a chance to get their voice heard. Because we went yeah. through years of being in these tiny bands and screaming to the same 45 kids to watching punk rock blow up on MTV. And it's like, oh, this is weird. But I walked into this hip hop shit and I'm just like, nah, man, if you're not saying anything real, then fuck you. You suck. And it was such a backwards way of thinking. But I'm thankful for people like Kendrick and for people like Lupe who kind of showed me that like, yo, you don't have to be such a dick. You can be a dick sometimes, you know, but you don't have to be a dick all the time. <laughs> yeah. That's what's hard too. I think just because it's what grabs attention sometimes, you know, yep. to be entertaining, you know? So yep. if everything was, yep, I respect your opinion. <laughs> it's not for me. The videos would be two minutes long, <laughs> you know, sometimes. Not to say that, you know, you have to be, have a ton of animus, but sometimes that is what's entertaining. And so you probably had some good responses or people who felt similarly to you that, might have helped influence that. So I'm sure there's that balance of figuring out what makes sense. Yeah. If I was never being an asshole and starting fights and screaming, Fantana would have never seen a video and did a collab Mm -hmm. with us and shouted us out. And we would have never gotten the subscriber base that we got. I think Fantano saw the Little B review, which I've still never watched. Mm -hmm. He saw the Little B review and was like, oh, I like these guys. They're screaming and yelling and fighting and it's entertaining. I want to do a video with them. And, you know, that's how we blew up, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to get onto some of your other items here, Mike. So you mentioned skating a bit ago, and one of the movies I had never heard of, but I'm very glad you sent to us because I actually enjoyed watching it, Gleaming the Cube. Can you tell us a bit about your intro to that and why it's here on your list? Oh, man, I can't believe you never saw that movie. Oh, man, it's classic, dude. So yeah. I'm, I'm sure, I don't know how old you guys are, but you look very, very young. So I'm sure I'm quite a bit older than both of you. But that movie came out in, I think, mm-hmm. 89. And... I saw it around when I was like 12. So I saw it a little while after it was out of the theater. But back in those days, everyone had a skateboard. Even if you didn't do tricks or anything, everybody had a skateboard. So I had a skateboard and I had a scooter. I was more partial to the scooter because the scooter was easier to ride. 
Yeah. I saw Gleam in the Cube and I was like, fuck this scooter, bro. I'm <laughs> bro, I'm I'm a I'm a skateboarder. And my mom was like, What? And I was like, I want a skateboard. I vividly I vividly remember this. I went out and got my my Veriflex skateboard that was in the garage. I cleaned it up and I just started skating around the parking lot. And it was it was gleaming the cube that really again put this idea of yeah, there's other people that are fucking weirdos. You know, and there's mm. absolutely nothing wrong with that. Like Brian was a weirdo, but he was cool yeah. as shit. <laughs> and that was my first introduction to seeing like punk rock stuff. Like he had the cramps shirt. He had the mm. huge cramps poster. Um, I think mm. he was playing like subhumans and it was like, what is this music? You know, look mm-hmm. at these guys hair. I mean, granted, you know, being a, a young black kid, seeing these white kids just being so like individual, mm-hmm. totally just like, ah, oh, I don't care if you guys think I'm weird. This is the shit I'm into. I just loved that idea. So through mm-hmm. skateboarding is really how I found punk rock, which is mm-hmm. essentially how I found, you know, a scene that made me feel like it was totally fine to be a wacko. So I credit yeah. all of that to, to Gleam of the Cube. And plus, I just think it's a God, it's a great movie. It's a great I mean, it's so for for its time, it's such a weird movie. Yeah. Because I mean, who was tackling issues like that? Like the white kid with the the Vietnamese adopted brother and the Vietnamese guy mm-hmm. is a part of this works at this shop and they're doing like this illegal gun trade. And it's coupled with like these guys trying to save their own country because they're at war. Mm-hmm. It was like what? What? <laughs> yeah. Like, how? How was this made? <laughs> yeah. For the audience, th- this movie, it's a like neo-noir film of sorts of young, young Christian Slater. Yeah. <laughs> He's in like, this skating community, and he has a Vietnamese adopted brother who gets killed as part of like a larger... <laughs> scheme because he starts to uncover these things and the whole movie is christian slater basically being the skateboard detective <laughs> trying yeah. to figure out what what ha- actually happened to his dead brother but i had two questions as you were talking that immediately came to mind the first was that you know tackling topics of like just race and stuff too i think of like the scene where he's like going to the hotel for the first time to kind of investigate mm. and he's talking to the housekeeper mm-hmm. and the way she just shuts him down after he was like oh he's my brother and she's like, you think, think I'm blind stupid? or stupid? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just because it's clear that he's not also Vietnamese, you know? Yep. But then second, you mentioned like it made you inspired <laughs> to skate. Was it the scene where it's just like his solo dance yep. skate number? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. It was, it was totally. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> audience, there's like a six minute <laughs> number. Like he, it's like almost no, no plot purpose. After he's like trying to investigate, he's talking to this detective and the detective basically tells him, hey, this case is a dud. There's not much we can do. And he leaves all pissed. And it's like a six minute skate dance. Wait, he says, he says, no, you don't get it. They killed my brother. And then he leaves. <laughs> and it's six minutes of just fucking skate. Man, it's the funniest, but like also it's the sickest thing I've ever seen. And what's funny is like they clearly had to have a double. So all the cuts between Christian Slater's like just face and then only the feet of the skater doing like these sick dance moves and spinning for like, three straight minutes. Like it, it was great. I was like, what is this scene? But it was fucking awesome. It's yeah. so stupid. It's so stupid. <laughs> and like <laughs> the, the the body double shit, like 
Once I started skating, yeah. I realized just how stupid it is. He goes from being regular footed to goofy footed like every 10 seconds. Oh, <laughs> shit. I didn't even notice that. Yeah. <laughs> and if you notice, like when he's riding his regular skateboard, like doing the tricks on the vert ramp, yeah. it's a regular Mike McGill skateboard. But then when mm-hmm. he's doing the freestyle stuff where he's dancing around or whatever, it's still a Mike McGill skateboard, but it's a freestyle board. So it's not even the same shape at all. Mm. And the thing, the movie had tons, like Tony Hawk's in it. Tommy Guerrero's in it, like legit skaters. And no one was like, yo, all of this is fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but yeah, it it was, it was mainly the scene where he goes over the ramp on the highway and fucking, Oh yes. (laughs) He does like this method air and then he hits the dude in the yeah. face with the skateboard. That yeah. that scene alone, because I had this idea of nerds being heroes. I always had this idea. And I was just like, oh my God, the nerd becomes the hero. But by doing mm-hmm. a method air over a fucking <laughs> <laughs> over 12 lanes of traffic. It's so oh, stupid. <laughs> Oh, man. It was such a joy. I didn't know what to expect going in, and it was just such a cool thing. I wasn't sure if it was because of the plot, but it sounds like it was a mixture of everything. I think, you know, in hindsight, you're enjoying some of the issues it was tackling, but mainly it was just the fucking sick tricks. Yep. (laughs) The sick sick tricks drew me in, man. I was like, I'm a skater now, official. Yeah. Well, hey, moving in the same space, I think I heard you mention it on a couple of your videos, one being like your questionnaire that you had with with your audience, but love for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm. Tell me about your love for Buffy. I know Allison Hannigan is a big part of that, but talk to me about your love for Buffy and why it's here on your list. Throughout the years, I have tried to tell so many people to give Buffy the Vampire Slayer a shot. A lot of people will be like, oh, the movie was stupid. It's like, yeah, this isn't the movie. And then a lot of people mm-hmm. will just look at the premise of the show and just be like, I'm not watching this. But I am 100% sincere when I say that this is one of the best written shows of all time. It really tackles the idea of, once again, the nerd becoming the hero. It really tackles that idea and does it in such a really cool way. They just kind of told the story of being an awkward teenager in one of the best ways. You know, even though the show was full of vampires and monsters and shit, there were just so many metaphors for real life. You know, Mm. Buffy was this pretty blonde girl, but Joss Whedon was just like, oh, the pretty blonde girl usually walks outside and gets killed in the first five minutes of the movie Mm -hmm. after the black person. If there's a black person, he dies first, of course. (laughs) But then after him, the pretty blonde girl dies. And he's just like, what if we take this person that is always the victim and we make her the hero? And Mm -hmm. even young, when I first started watching this show, I was just like, this is brilliant. You know, because I mean, at the time I was really, really into PC hardcore. So there was a lot of discussion around misogyny and equal rights, that type of thing. So watching a show like this that was totally willing to put something out there that wasn't a common idea was just so brilliant to me. And it still is. Yeah. No, and I think you you nailed it when it ushered in that era of television that had these strong female leads, you know, mm-hmm. maybe some of it on the same network, but like the Veronica Marses of that time, yep. Joan of Arcadia, this was the start of that, yep. you know? I think my first introduction actually wasn't to Buffy, but was to Angel. Oh, okay. I saw the the spinoff first, and my family was watching Angel religiously. And then it kind of transitioned whenever I realized there was this extended universe of sorts, or that Angel was a part of this extended universe, Mm -hmm. then went back and saw some of the Buffy stuff. What's interesting to me, though, is I talked about how it ushered in 
you know, the Veronica Marses and the Jones of Arcadia, but it also introduced, I think, just what is now the golden age of television. And you mentioned how good the writing is, but Mm -hmm. it was the first thing of its era to have an expanded universe, you know, that I can remember outside of like maybe Cheers or whatever, you know, how they had spinoffs in that world, but to have these larger stories with characters that you wanted to follow on these larger spinoffs shows and a drama experience. And so Mm. it was super impactful and changed, I think, the course of television. I agree. A hundred percent. I think once you get past that first season and you get into the second season and then the third season, Mm. I think you really start to see how well the show's written. Every character was so different. The show even made up its own weird languages for certain things. Mm -hmm. But it was just, I don't know, man. I, I, I just always get stuck on this idea of nerds and losers saving the world. Because I mean, that's how that's how me and my friends felt. We were losers and nerds, but you know, we were in punk rock bands and we sang about sexism and homophobia and racism. And we literally thought that so ridiculously stupid now, but we we really thought that we were going to change the world to the point where all of those you know inequalities were going to be gone by the time we were adults. We were like, this is going to be the last generation that has to deal with racism and sexism and all these things. And it's so stupid to relate it to Buffy. But really, like when you watch Buffy, mm-hmm. it was this small group of kids that protected the world over and over and over again. And you watch mm-hmm. this young girl who's dealing with growing up and, you know, taking on roles that she wasn't ever ready for, you know, losing her mother. Oh, am I giving spoilers? Have y'all watched Buffy? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Good. Keep, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, like losing her mom and then having to take care of her kid's sister, having to learn Mm -hmm. how to pay bills and then dealing with relationships with dudes. I could be making this up, but I'm almost sure that Buffy was, if not the first, one of the first shows to show like a lesbian kiss. I feel like I remember reading that. I hope I'm not making that up. But I think I remember reading that it was one of the first shows to show a lesbian kiss on network television, where yeah. in those days, something like that could be the end of your end of your show. But the fact yeah. that Joss Whedon was ready to just go all out and be like, yeah, we're going to make Willow a lesbian, which that wasn't that wasn't common back then. You didn't see that shit on TV all the time. But Buffy did Never. it. You know, it was it was it really is an amazing show. It's dramatic. It's heartfelt. It's funny. It's quirky. You know, it's snarky. It's just so good, man. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think they do a great job too of the, there's the drama with the vampires and everything too, you know, but with the, there's heart, there's comic relief, there's, you know, you get invested in the romance of it yep. too, you know, outside of the action and the, you know, fantasy elements of it. When I was watching your video, when you, when I first saw you bringing it up, you did your like 25 questions to get to know you. Mm. You had mentioned that you watched an episode and then it kept going and it kept going. I'm curious, you know, what was your relationship with it? Because I know for me, when I was younger with network TV, Mm -hmm. there wasn't a Netflix, you could just stream everything, right? Mm -hmm. How did you get invested in the show? Was it just having to catch the, you know, I'm waiting for it to come on next week, and then hopefully they do reruns, and I can, you know, try to piece it all together? Or Mm -hmm. what was your method to try and get the whole narrative? The show, I believe started airing, I can't remember if it was 96 or 97, one of the two years. Mm -hmm. I remember... And now that you're mentioning Netflix and binging, I don't know how this happened, but I remember going home to do laundry at my mom's house. I literally just flipped the TV on and it was on some cute girls fighting a monster. And I was like, okay, I'll watch this. <laughs> I'm in. You know, I'm, I'm game. <laughs> and that episode ended. I put my clothes in the dryer. The next episode ended. My clothes came out the dryer and I just didn't get up. I remember watching three or four episodes in a row, but I mean, I don't know why though. Why would they have been showing... Why would they have been showing three or four? It must four? have been a marathon. It must you have been. Like a marathon, yeah. <laughs> it must have, because it was, it was definitely the first season. 
So maybe they were showing a marathon of the first season, but I watched like four episodes. I remember being like, shit, I don't want to get up and leave. I want to watch more of this. Somehow I ended up getting caught up from the second season on. I watched it week to week and every roommate I'd have, they knew on whatever day it was, Sundays at eight o'clock, shut the whole fuck up. If you even (laughs) think of speaking, I will fucking kill you because this is serious shit. I need to watch Buffy. And years and years and years later, those friends are now going back being like, yeah, you were right. Buffy's great. I'm like, yeah, you should have been, (laughs) you should have listened to me. Some people don't know. So I was in a band also back in the late nineties. And I don't even know if the band members know this yet, but I snuck in so many Buffy references and we were like, we were like a metal (laughs) band. One of our songs had like a chant part and the line was from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And they don't know that. That's fucking hard. It's so, it's so ridiculous. And it, looking back on it, I don't know what made me do it, but I'm sure you you don't remember if you've ever watched the show. You don't remember this episode, but there was one where there was like a, a ventriloquist dummy that was killing people. And right before the ventriloquist dummy was killing this person, he just said something like, I will be flesh. And one of our songs, that's like a chant part at the end where I'm saying that over and over again. And, and <laughs> you know, at the time, you're like, oh, it's so evil. It's dark. And oh, man. I'm like, motherfucker, it's Buffy, bro. You don't even know that shit. It's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> oh, man. Well, hey, I know we're getting close here on time. So I want to go ahead and move on here to the next thing here. Buffy, audience, if you haven't watched it, you're hearing the wreck. Go, go check it out. Yeah. Bukowski, Mm. one of the things that I found interesting is your email signature as we've been kind of going back and forth here is a Bukowski quote. Tell me about your kind of intro to him and his work and what you found so impactful. So my roommate is actually the one who put me on to Bukowski. You know, I've been a writer for years, but it was one of those things where it's like you find something that makes your own writing make sense. I had been writing like Bukowski and had never read a single thing by Bukowski. And when I picked up the first book I ever got, it was called Betting on the Muse. It's a collection of poems, very short poems. And the way he wrote prior to that, I didn't really understand that poetry could be that abstract, but at the same time, that on the nose. Like he would really just write a two-page poem about being at a bar and his napkin getting too wet from the drink sitting on it. Mm -hmm. But it's just the way he would say it would just be beautiful, beautiful. And for being such a disgusting human as he was, the fact that his writing was, it was seriously beautiful. Yeah. I think it was from the same one, actually. I think it's in Betting on the Muse, but he he has that one. Um, I think I have it here. Let me let me get it up here real quick. Yeah, I, uh, I just stood up to get the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, about the rain and the cat. So it's sleeping in the rain helps me forget things like I'm going to die. Mm. And you're going to die and the cats are going to die. And it's still good to stretch out and know you have arms and feet and a head. Hands, all the parts, even eyes to close once, once more. It really helps to know these things, to know your advantages and your limitations. Mm. But why do the cats have to die? I think the world should be full of cats and full of rain. That's all. Just cats and rain, rain and cats. Very nice. Good night. That's one (laughs) of my favorite pieces. It really is. And it's just like, it's beautiful. Like, you know, just you talk about like just the imagery that you get Mm -hmm. and uh, it's just, it's beautiful. You come across so many of those things, you know, even like a much shorter one where it's just like, how can you be true and kind at the same time? How? Small little moments. That's a feeling I've never, I've had, but never really was able to put into words or to, um, articulate. And sometimes just when you come across something, it's just like, 
I know that. I know that feeling. And uh, it, it's it's precious when you come across something like that. Yeah, it's really it's really like a ding, ding moment. Being someone that's obsessed with cats, that was always just like, wow, that's <laughs> amazing. You know, I just grabbed it. And the thing, the thing about this book that's so great, I won't read a whole poem or anything, but the thing that's so great about mm-hmm. this book is you can literally just turn to any random page. I just turned to just a random page, 271, and just listen to this. By the time they get your book, you are no longer your book. You're on the next page, the next book. Something that simple. But yeah, Bukowski, you know, that led me to get into stuff like, you know, John Fonte and Kerouac. And, you know, I, I said on a couple episodes back on Is the Mic Salon, they'd had no idea that I really used to want to be like this beatnik, this black beatnik poet. I wrote a lot. I used to do like slam poetry and shit. But yeah, Charles Bukowski is just, oh, he was he was an amazing writer. Terrible human, but an amazing writer. Yeah, I, I think that's the kind of the struggle because when you when you talk about someone like that, especially in today's age, right? There's like he probably would have been canceled. Oh yeah, right? oh yeah. So, you know, almost instantly. You know, but what I think is is difficult about that, and as I think it's like as difficult as he was, right? There there are things that people can learn from it that aren't in correlation with who he is as a human. Yep. And at the same time, like when you're talking about this, like detailed depiction of, you know, this male fantasy or, you know, antisocial nature, like there are other people who are probably like that. Right. And you can at the very least understand them, right. You may not have to agree with them. You might not have to put them on a pedestal as to say they are great humans, but it's almost a disservice to not obtain the art, but also obtain that perspective, right? Because you're highlighting, I think, how people think. And so it's tough, that whole separating art from artists mm-hmm. stuff. I agree that there's just so much here that I'm glad it exists. You oh, know? yeah. And it would be a disappointment if it didn't. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know that you're a big MF Doom fan. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, the album Born Like This, he even has a song where he says featuring Charles Bukowski, you know, mm-hmm. what came first there? And what is your relationship to Doom being inspired by so much of his work? I just thought it was another reason to love Doom, you know, and, and mm-hmm. when you read Bukowski, it totally makes sense why Doom would be super into him. The way Doom would say the most simple concepts in the most complex way you look at Bukowski and you flip that on his head. You know, he would say the most mm. complex things in the most simple way. You know, mm. I think that both of those artists, they just, they so understand how words work and how mm. words are supposed to make you feel. You sit down, you listen to accordion and you're like, God, how the fuck did he compose this? Yeah. It's just mm-hmm. like the line I read you. How did he compose something as simple as by the time they get to your book, you're on to the next book, you're on to the next. Like, how, how does that come out when you're trying to convey this idea. So yeah, Doom being Doom being into Bukowski totally makes sense. I wish there were more interviews with Doom where he actually talked about that. I would have loved to hear about that. Yeah, I think it goes to what we were saying a bit ago too is like without that art, you lose other artists who yep. are who they are because of that, you know. I know when I was looking into this too or even just finding other videos like Mac Miller really loved Bukowski. Oh, Anthony I didn't know Kiedis, that. The Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, mm. have like an af- affinity for Bukowski. So it's mm-hmm. like to not have maybe some of Mac Miller's work or mm-hmm. Red Hot Chili Peppers or MF Doom, it would be like a disservice mm-hmm. to the world, you know? So yeah, it's crazy. Just that ripple effect of the way art impacts everything. Yeah. That's interesting. I never knew Mac Miller was a Bukowski fan. That's yeah. really interesting. I'll, have to, I'll find the video again and send it to you in the in our email thread. Yeah, please do. So you can see it after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Awesome. Well, hey, we'll get to your last one here, Mike. David Lynch, incredible director, filmmaker. Tell me, what was your intro to David Lynch and and, and why do you love him so much? Oh, I'm trying to remember. But I, I'm pretty sure the first thing I saw by Lynch was Blue Velvet. And David Lynch, I feel like, is the beginning of me just being like, oh, so art really doesn't have to follow any kind of linear idea, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. The whole idea of everything is art was really kind of pushed by Lynch. I hate when people try to exclude certain things from categories or genres because they don't like it. Oh, mm-hmm. Death Grips isn't hip hop because I don't like it and it doesn't follow this, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Or, you know, Little Yachty isn't hip hop because mm-hmm. he doesn't do X, Y, and Z. And it's just like, well, no. Mm-hmm. One, you don't get to say what is or isn't a part of art. I accept everything as art. Now, you don't have to like everything that's art, but you can't say yeah. that this art is objectively bad. That idea doesn't exist. Right. So Lynch was really the one that kind of pushed that idea. One of my favorite Lynch quotes is he says, I don't know why people expect art to make sense when life doesn't make any sense. Uh, and it's like, I could go outside right now. I might have you know a moth fly in my eye and then I might step in dog shit. Or I m- there might be a homeless person across the street that starts talking to me about aliens and mad dog. Those things are completely random and weird, but life is random and weird. So yeah. when people look at art and they're just like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. Well, your fucking life doesn't make any sense. I guarantee it. I guarantee your life makes no sense. So why do you think all of art is – but he also says um, the concept of absurdity – is something that I'm attracted to. That's kind of the same idea. And that's kind of how I am now. It's just like the things that other people would find completely absurd, like MF Doom making an entire song about food that just, why? But the fact that you can do it so well, I'm totally attracted to that. Or the idea of something like, you know, noise rap, two ideas that shouldn't go together but you have groups like Death Grips and you know and, and Moody Black and Dialect that combine these two things. Some people will be like, that's totally absurd. And I'm like, but that's kind of the point, isn't it? Like, isn't art supposed to kind of challenge your perceptions of things? You know, it's supposed to be absurd. You know, it doesn't have to be, but in my in my world, it's supposed to be absurd. So when I see David Lynch making a movie where nothing in it is linear, I'm like, well, God, it doesn't have to be, man. It's art. It doesn't have to be linear. You take what you want from it. The first thing that come to, comes to my mind, uh, David Lynch related in that vein is, and I just started it, so please don't spoil the end of Twin Peaks for me if you've seen it. But, um, <laughs> okay. I you know, took the opportunity to start watching the show and mm. in the first couple of episodes, first kind of dream sequence that Agent Cooper has. And I remember sitting there watching through it and I'm kind of just like, I don't get this. This is some pretentious bullshit, you know? And then Mm -hmm. realizing that like, oh, wait, this is a dream sequence. And this is exactly (laughs) how dreams are. Nothing makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's just these random things or you see someone who you know in real life, but they're not the person that you actually knew. Like those kinds of things to see that represented visually. And I'm like, that's fucking brilliant. Like I had never right? experienced something like that before. Like, how do you even write that? Like, I don't even know where to begin. Exactly. Exactly. Just like you just said, how do you even write that? People will look at his films and just be like, like you said, you know, it's pretentious bullshit. And right. it, I mean, it, it is, you know, it's totally, it's <laughs> yeah. totally pretentious. 
But I don't think that something that's pretentious should automatically be looked at in the world of art, at least. You know, it shouldn't automatically be looked at as disposable or stupid or useless Mm -hmm. or simple. You know, David Lynch is putting these ideas out there that really only make sense to him. He's not concerned with that shit making sense to anyone else. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's kind of the beauty of what he's doing is that you just draw your own conclusions. You go to a museum and you look at some fucking Jackson Pollock painting. You're a dickhead if you're just like, oh, this is clearly his struggle with a sugar addiction. And see the line here? That's a representation of the beeline he takes to get to the store to get more sugar. It's like, fuck off. No, it's not, dude. You have no idea what you're talking about. Why don't you just say what it means to you? If this is a representation to you of how much you love your grandma, dope. But I would never go around trying to tell people what David Lynch films mean because I'm going to be full of shit. But that is the absolute brilliant thing about David Lynch. And do I think he's a total wackadoo? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But in some way, we all are. I mean, I'm a fucking wacko. So why wouldn't I look at his shit and just be like, man, how the hell did you write this? Man, we're going to air this and David Lynch is going to come on and be like, actually, Mike, all those people were right when they said that line. (laughs) (laughs) I I I wouldn't even be surprised. Like... (laughs) <laughs> you know, David Lynch is such an asshole. He probably would be like, oh, yeah, everything that they said was true, Mike. I don't know if you guys have, have ever listened to an interview with that guy, but oh, my God, he's fucking hilarious. One thing that I thought was uh, really funny in terms of your web of stuff here is generally when when I have someone's pop five, I generally kind of see like, where are some of the connection points and through lines? And what I find interesting is that David Lynch obviously loves Kyle MacLachlan, both with the Twin Peaks connection and Blue Velvet. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned your love for Allison Hannigan, and both of them were on like How I Met Your Mother for you know so many years together on that show. Oh so shit! Really? Like, look at all these connection points. Yeah. So like Kyle MacLachlan is like a like a side character in How I Met Your Mother for a few seasons, and he interacts with Allison Hannigan quite a bit in that. And so I was like, <laughs> seeing these various connection points is kind of funny. I've never watched that show. I've mm-hmm. I've heard it's brilliant. I just never got around to it. So I had no idea. That he was he was on there. That's kind of cool, actually. Is he being a weirdo? Because he's kind of he's kind of a weirdo in real life. Is he being a weirdo on the show? Dude, he's a weirdo. <laughs> it, it, they do it like in a funny way on How I Met Your Mother because yeah. it's a sitcom, you know. Sure. He's like obsessed with boats. His character is called like the captain, <laughs> and they keep running across they keep running across him. And like the bit that they have with him is kind of like how you see in the camera right now. You see how like there's a shadow on half of my face. Yeah. If it's only his eyes, he looks like demented. But then once you see his mouth, he like is like a happy guy, you know. So like. <laughs> They do like this whole like bit with him, like in the shadows versus not in the shadows. And so it's pretty good. You know, uh, I love that show. It's probably hard to watch now in hindsight because sitcoms, you know, generally don't age well. Yeah, I loved it. I loved that show. It was funny. I'm going to watch it. I am going to watch it. Well, hey, Mike, we'll get you out of here. But before we do, we ask everyone five rapid fire questions to send us out. Oh, so, no, I'm, ter- I'm terrible at this kind of shit. I'm so bad with this kind of thing. Go ahead. First question here, Mike, if you could be on any reality TV show or you had to be on a reality TV show, which one would you choose? Oh, I can't. Fuck. I can't think of the name of it. There's this show. It was on MTV, not MTV, on Netflix, where the people dress up like monsters and they go on dates. Whoa, I haven't heard of this. Yeah. Sounds pretty sick. They all dress up as like I might be like a Cyclops and the girl (laughs) might be like a dragon. And then we go on a date and then she has to pick the person 
that she got along with the best based on their conversation. And then at the end, they reveal them. They're like their real face. Like, oh, I'm not really a Cyclops. I'm this like busted ass dude, sexy you know? Beast. Yeah, I'm this sexy, sexy beast. That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Yeah. I would totally be on that All right. show. <laughs> All right. We love it. If people have never consumed any of your pop five, what's the one that you'd want them to go experience right now? Oh, fuck. Uh, the Cure. Yeah, the Cure. the Cure. All right. We know you have an affinity and love for records and albums. So what is a record that you wish you could go back and experience for the first time again? Oh, man. That's tough. Um, a record that I feel like I could go back and experience for the first time again. Honestly, probably Company Flow's Fun Crusher Plus, because I vividly mm. remember the first time I hear I heard it and just being like, mm. what in the fuck is this? Like, how is this rap? But it's so good. So yeah, mm. I would love to experience that again. Because with the way rap is now, I don't think we're ever going to hear something where it's completely brand new. New. Mm. Yeah. You know? Totally. Awesome. Well, hey, what, what's something that you learned about yourself during the pandemic? That I definitely need to exercise regularly. Because <laughs> yeah. God, man, they, you know, the, I think the people call it the COVID-15. And yeah, yeah. I gained a lot of, <laughs> I'm just lazy. But I, I think that's the main thing um, that I learned is that I am seriously really fucking lazy. And I need, mm. I really need to work on that. Sure. Yeah, no, it's good that, that you are able to reflect and learn that now at this point. And be All self-deprecating, right. of course. <laughs> yeah. <you know. laughs> Last question here. What advice would you give to others who want to start content creation, podcast, YouTube, or anything like that? I would say be authentic, but at the same time, understand that the people that you're being authentic about, there's a very good likelihood that they could see what you were saying. So mm. be authentic, mm. be honest, but at the same time, you should still have some sort of level of respect, which I did yeah. not have at the beginning. And I regret so much, so many of the things that I've said in the past that it's mm. not even funny. So yeah, be authentic, be honest, but at the same time, still hold some modicum of respect. Yeah. Awesome. Last thing here then, Mike, anything you want to promote? Where can people follow you? This is your time. Let us know where the people can find you. Okay, sure. They can find, well, I'll give the bigger channel first. Like, no, fuck that. I'll give my own shit first. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just in case they happen to turn it off after my shit. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me, MikeCtown.com. That's M-Y-K-E-C-T-O-W-N.com. From there, you can go to my YouTube channel. You can go to my Twitter but yeah, I mean, I, I I do my own channel where I talk about records. I talk about um, just random shit that I don't get to talk about with Dead End Hip Hop, which Dead End Hip Hop is my other channel, which you can find that on YouTube at Dead End Hip Hop, uh, where we do music reviews, we do culture critiques, conversations. So yeah, I try to cover the, the gamut of things, mm -hmm. you know, we talk about rap there and on my channel, you talk about punk, metal, and all kinds of weird, nerdy shit. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll add on to that. We love his channel too because of your Out of My Element series too, where you also just <laughs> expose yourself to the stuff that you normally wouldn't. Um, I think me and Daniel both geeked out on your kind of blue review in that um, Out of My Element section. Oh, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. That was one really good. Really good. That was fun. Thanks again, Mike. Audience, please go like the hell out of his stuff. Um, you're going to be better off for it. Um, and Mike, just thank you so much for joining us. We really just enjoyed this time so much. Yeah, yeah man. man. Thank thanks you. for thanks for inviting me. Thanks a lot for inviting me. This was fun. All right, y'all. That's it for today. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Mike. You can check out his work on YouTube 
Follow him on Twitter and Instagram for more music recommendations and discussions. And be sure to leave all of his links in the description. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at MyPop5. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It truly goes a long way. We'll see you next week. Until then, what's your Pop 5?